We're here today with another episode of Trump Watch Sussex. Today, in light of the recent events in Charlottesville um, and the controversy about Confederate monuments um, in the United States, we'll be looking at the backstory of these Confederate monuments, um, the backstory of white supremacy um, in the United States, and we'll thinking also about Trump um, and his comments um, in light of the riots um, and violence in Charlottesville. Today, as my guest, I have two professors of history here at the University of Sussex, Robert Cook, who's recently published a book entitled Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. Robert is a specialist um, in the U.S. Civil War, um, in particular in thinking about how it's been remembered, forgotten, and commemorated um, in the years since the war ended. My other guest today is Clive Webb, who's the author of Rabble Rousers, the American Far Right in the Civil Rights Era. He's an American historian um, who thinks about race um, here at the University of Sussex. So with that, uh, let's get started. So I wanted to first think about the history behind these Confederate memorials. Why were these memorials built? What was their original purpose? So the Confederate uh, monuments that litter the southern commemorative landscape um, today, um, the vast majority of them were built uh, during the Jim Crow era of the very late 19th uh, and early 20th century. And they were really built to um, honor the Confederate men and indeed women um, who lived through the uh, War of uh, 1861 to 1865, uh, a war that cost uh, the South tens of thousands uh, of lives and a war that was, from the vantage point of Southern whites, a war for independence uh, from, the, um, from the Yankee, uh, from those Yankees who uh, Southern whites believed were trying to um, tyrannize uh, and oppress them. Uh, they were built, uh, funded by a variety of different uh, groups uh, in the post-war South, uh, but particularly uh, Confederate veterans uh, and also elite uh, Southern white women, some of whom were organized um, as a group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, these were, um, as the name suggests, these were daughters uh, of Confederate uh, veterans, and their uh, objective really was to uh, to honor the sacrifices and the courage uh, of their uh, of their uh, fathers. And uh, uh, they, uh, they, these groups built um, um, a number of different kinds of uh, monuments. The most significant were statues of um, uh, southern uh, generals and politicians, uh, generals like Robert E. Lee, politicians like Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, um, but also statues of the ordinary um, Confederate soldier uh, as well. And there are also... Um, uh, a small number of uh, monuments dedicated to the women uh, of the Confederacy. Uh, those were also built as, w- as well. There's a very interesting one, for example, uh, on the Capitol grounds uh, in uh, uh, in South Carolina, in Columbia, South Carolina. De Clive, is there anything that you want to add about kind of why these were built? I think what is important to emphasize is that 
whether their purpose was primarily to honour the Confederate war dead or not, that they serve as a powerful symbol of white supremacy uh, and they are interpreted as such by African Americans. So the late 19th and early 20th century has been described by Rayford Logan as the nadir of American race relations. It's a time when new state constitutions are written uh, that mandate the legal separation of black and white, that strip African Americans of the right to vote, and when extra-legal force, lynching and race rights are at their peak. So the strategic location as well of some of these statues, I think it's important that they are set up outside of courthouses and capital buildings, and they are, in that respect, a potent symbol of white power, a, a redeemed South, to use the language of, of white Southerners themselves, uh, and you know a, rem- a pub- very public reminder to African Americans uh, of their subordinate status and of white hegemonic power. And Clive is absolutely right um, on that score. Um, these these monuments were were built, um, yes, to um, to honour uh, and uh, uh, commemorate the services and sacrifices uh, of uh, the Confederate uh, wartime generation. But of course, they are also built to uh, honour the cause for which uh, those people um, fought uh, and died. And it's absolutely essential um, in the modern day to uh, recognise that the cause for which uh, they fought was the cause of self-government. But of course, um, in the context of the 1860s, that means that the Confederates were fighting uh, for the liberty to own other human beings. And there can be no question about that. The vice president of the Confederacy... Uh, Alexander Stevens, whose statue can still be found uh, in the U.S. Capitol uh, in Washington. Uh, Stevens uh, went to uh, the cotton port of Savannah uh, in March of 1861, just before the Civil War broke out. And he um, made it clear that the Confederacy uh, was a new kind of government. Uh, Stevens uh, argued that the that America's founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson, had been absolutely wrong to contend that all men were created equal. The Confederacy, uh, our new government, Stevens uh, intoned, uh, was founded uh, on exactly the opposite conviction, and that was the conviction that the Negro is inferior to the white man. And Stevens and other Confederates were very open uh, about uh, about that view. Thank you. That's all very interesting. So many of these statues are built around the turn of the century. And how linked are they to the disfranchisement and segregation that is setting in a more kind of formalized kind of um, legal way around the South at that time? Is there a link between actual loss of rights and kind of putting up these statues of Confederate heroes? There is a very clear connection, a very clear connection between the uh, construction uh, of these monuments uh, and uh, the fact that this is the era uh, when white Southerners uh, have, again in their parlance, uh, thrown off the Yankee uh, yoke uh, and they are uh, restored uh, to home rule. 
Um, they now have the uh, power to uh, oppress uh, African-Americans, to render them second-class uh, citizens, as they do uh, during the 1890s and in the following decades, through a variety of different uh, ways, uh, through disfranchisement, uh, through racial segregation, uh, and, of course, uh, through the heinous crime of uh, lynching. So there is no doubt that these statues were, uh, were built in very public places, in part at least to signify um, white supremacism and the return uh, to power uh, of, of whites to signify that they had been able to reconstruct uh, white supremacy after the uh, chaos of uh, the Reconstruction era. It's almost a rewriting of the past, isn't it? In the sense that viewed from the immediate end of the Civil War, the Confederacy has clearly lost it is defeated on the battlefield. Uh, it, ha you know, it has lost its capacity for self-government. It's occupied by Union forces. But a generation on, uh, at the end of the 19th and into the early 20th centuries, this is an opportunity for white Southerners essentially to say, well, in a way we actually won the war uh, because we have been able over the course of time to re-establish historical continuity um, to maintain our, uh, our political and economic dominance um, over African-Americans. We are freed from the tyranny, as they saw it, of um, white northern military occupation and rule. So there's a there's a there's a there's a script here I think uh, as well which is which is about you know from a from another vantage point being able to rewrite their own history. That's quite right. So these these statues these monuments need to be seen as part of a broader attempt on the part of white southerners to construct um the lost cause narrative. Um and uh one of the critical aspects, I think, of the Lost Cause narrative is that um, white Southerners in the late 19th century claimed um, that they had fought um, as Americans for an authentic, for the authentic American principle of self-government. And this is part and parcel of their attempts to resist um, uh, claims by the North that uh, Southerners, white Southerners, were traitors. Um, the lost cause and the, the monuments that went along with it um, are an attempt on the part of the defeated Confederates to say we're not we were not traitors. We in fact were the were the genuinely loyal Americans because we were trying to um, we were trying to safeguard and sustain the principles of the original Constitution, the principle of self government liberty as defined by slaveholding Confederates. Thank you. So it seems what you're saying in many ways is that these statues are an assertion that even though they lost the Civil War, the many of the values that they fought for, um, they believe they were still able to kind of exercise this white supremacy. And in building these statues, they were um, they were showing um, that they, they could still do so. I want to think a little bit about resistance to these statues. So there's so much resistance um, to these statues among certain um, Americans today. Was there resistance at the time to building these statues or to kind of having them in their communities? Um, there was um, resistance to the building of these uh, statues. Um, 
in the 1890s, most notably, I think, from um, white northerners in particular, um, not least Union veterans, who were appalled to see statues uh, of the traitor uh, Robert E. Lee uh, being constructed uh, in many parts of the uh, South. Um, it was much harder for African-Americans to re- actually resist the building of these um, statues uh, in the Jim Crow um, era. African-Americans did not have uh, the financial resources um, to build their own uh, monuments. Uh, and, of course, they were, uh, uh, they were uh, going to put themselves in danger from white violence uh, if they physically uh, tried to resist the construction of these uh, monuments. Um, but there is a lot of criticism uh, of the monuments. Uh, for example, the Robert E. Lee, gigantic equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee that was built in Richmond uh, in 1890, um, there's uh, significant opposition to that statue in the black, in the, uh, the black press uh, at the time. And if we think in, in broader terms about how did African-Americans try to contest um, the lost cause narrative as it was being constructed by the former Confederates in the late 19th century, one good example of the, the way that they did that was um, in December of 1889 uh, when uh, Confederate Jefferson Davis uh, died and was... Uh, Uh, was buried in New Orleans. Uh, At the time of his um, uh, military funeral uh, in New Orleans, tens of thousands of Southern whites uh, turned out um, to mourn Jefferson Davis. The streets of New Orleans uh, on the day of the funeral um, were um, emptied uh, of African-Americans. So that's just one one way that African-Americans were able to resist. Now, later on uh, in the Jim Crow era, I think it it, it did become... um, uh, somewhat easier for African Americans to um, uh, stop the building of some of these monuments. The, the best example that I can think of is in the 1920s. Um, the United Daughters of the Confederacy were, were very keen on building a monument to the Black Mammy, um, the faithful slave um, in Washington, D.C., uh, and that, those attempts were resisted successfully uh, by uh, black newspapers, for example, in the uh, uh, in the northern states. Uh, so there is growing um, evidence of African American um, resistance to these uh, to these kind of statues. That's fascinating. It's interesting to hear that not only were they resisting, but they were at times successful, um, as in the the statue of the Black Mammy. I want to think a little bit now about the specific statue that is was causing kind of all of the controversy in Charlottesville. So it's a statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, he's there on a horse. And what? Who? Who exactly um, was Robert E. Lee? Why? Um, why is he being commemorated? Robert E. Lee uh, was the uh, famed commander of the Confederate Army of Northern uh, Virginia. So he was the the South's. Um, leading military commander during the American Civil War. Prior to the conflict, uh, Lee uh, had been um, had fought for the United States uh, during the war against Mexico during the late 1840s. Um, uh, he'd also been um, uh, a very significant figure at, uh, at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy during the uh, during the 1850s. Um, so he was loyal um, to the Union right up. Uh, until the uh, uh, the Civil War actually uh, began, and he was offered uh, the command of the Union Army in Washington uh, just before the Civil War uh, broke out. Um, but um, in the, in Lee legend, um, Lee has this uh, appalling dilemma: 
which which side to support. And after um, much thought, he decides that he must uh, go with his state, um, Virginia. So that's how he ends up um, uh, fighting for the uh, for, for the Confederacy. Um, he's a very successful commander in uh, in many respects. Um, a, a, a very uh, a very adept uh, and aggressive uh, commander. Um, Lee um, commands the Army of Northern Virginia in very significant victories uh, against the uh, Yankees at Fredericksburg, for example, in late 1862. Uh, and again, one of his great uh, triumphs at uh, Chancellorsville uh, in 1863. Um, but he's not flawless as a, as, as, as a commander. Um, one of his greatest mistakes probably was his decision to attack the uh, center of the Union lines at the Battle of Gettysburg on the third day, uh, and uh, Lee's attacking troops were mown down by uh, Union artillery. So, in part, at least, Lee must uh, blame must take some of the blame for the uh, uh, for the uh, uh, failure at Gettysburg. So he's famous because he is uh, um, the most significant of all uh, Confederate commanders. So it seems that in many ways, in having a statue of Lee, it represents kind of the Confederacy in many ways as kind of the leading military commander of the of the Confederacy. I want to think a little bit about this actual statue and why it was erected. So my understanding is that it was actually put into the, the city of Charlottesville in 1924. Do you know anything about about why why nineteen twenty four so many years after the civil war why why put up a statue of Lee then? Well, we need to remember that uh, uh, these statues are going up um, all the time. These Confederate statues are being built um, through the Jim Crow um, era, so um, a number of um, statues were being built in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. Uh, this particular statue was the gift of a local uh, businessman. Uh, named Paul Goodloe uh, McIntyre, and uh, Goodloe was a, a, a very uh, Goodloe McIntyre was a, a prominent benefactor of the University of uh, Virginia. Um, he donated um, tens of thousands of pounds to um, to the university, um, not only in terms of uh, benefactions, but also um, he provided money to uh, beautify the uh, the local landscape. Uh, and so um, the money for the Lee statute went alongside uh, money for uh, for a park, uh, Lee Park. So I think his uh, um, his efforts must be seen in the context of the uh, of the Progressive Era's City Beautiful movement, trying to trying to be, trying to improve the the landscape around the uh, around the University of uh, uh, of Virginia, uh, of which uh, uh, McIntyre was such a prominent benefactor. That's all very interesting. Let's turn now to the August events um, around the Charlottesville um, statue. And it began when the city um, began to plan to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee. Why do some, some people today want to take down these Confederate monuments? What do they hope to accomplish by, by taking down these monuments of the Confederacy? I think the answer is is quite simple to that, uh, that 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 particular question. They are seen quite rightly by um, many African Americans, not all African Americans, but many African Americans uh, and uh, their uh, progressive white allies, as symbols of uh, white supremacy. 
um, and that is the reason um, why there is so much opposition uh, to these uh, statues today. Yeah, the desire to take down the monuments is an opportunity to exorcise the ghosts of the Confederate past. Um, you know that they the statues remain a potent symbol of a region that is not fully reconciled. One hundred and fifty years after the end of the Civil War, where race remains its principal fault line, and so it's an attempt really to, in removing them, to 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 publicly heal the wounds that uh, that run deep in the, in the American South. So what do the two of you think of of this kind of um, would would taking down these statues actually accomplish some of these purposes or or would removing them have a real kind of impact on on race relations in the US? What do the two of you think? I don't think that the the removal of the monuments in itself will solve many of the systemic problems that uh, African Americans, not only in the South but throughout the United States, face. Um, I think psychologically, they may it may serve uh, an important purpose of just being able to navigate your way through um, the urban landscape of the South without these constant reminders. Um, of uh, the region's white supremacist past. So I think that they can be, their removal could be an empowering experience for white progressives and African Americans. Um, Broadly speaking, I agree with uh, uh, Clive on this uh, uh, issue. Um, Even, let's face it, even uh, if if all of the Confederate statues in the South were removed, that in itself is not going to get rid of uh, um, uh, American racism um, and white supremacism. Um, But I do think um, there is a good case for um, taking down many uh, of these uh, statues uh, and uh, at the very least, um, either destroying them or removing them uh, to a museum or possibly a Confederate uh, cemetery. My own view is that some of these monuments could be useful for teaching purposes. I'm a historian of Civil War memory, so it's very useful um, to teach uh, students and uh, uh, people today about how um, the memory of past events evolve over time and how um, Monuments themselves can be symbols uh, of um, social power in a, a, a particular society. So, if some of the monuments were retained, uh, were retained with uh, interpretive uh, plaques of some kind, there may be um, there may be a good reason uh, for doing that. One one one, one good example of, of retaining um, white supremacist uh, history or, or or a token of white supremacist history, I think is the the old um, terminal station in Macon, uh, Georgia, um, where the sign Coloured Waiting Room uh, has um, has been um, retained. And in fact, it was it was covered up for a very long time. But in 1999, the first mayor of Macon, the first black mayor of Macon decided he was going to uncover the sign. And when you go to Macon now and see the the terminal, that has a very strong impact uh, on um, uh, contemporaries uh, who see this sign and does get you thinking about um, racial segregation and what um, what that was all about in terms of uh, rendering African Americans second class citizens. So I think I'm not in favour of getting rid of all of the uh, Confederate monuments, although I 
I, I, I empathise um, entirely with um, efforts to, uh, uh, to do this. That's very interesting to think about these monuments as something that could be used to teach about kind of the contested history um, of race um, in the U.S. and U.S. South. I want to think a little bit um, now about the white supremacist groups that were um, that were challenging the removal of this monument in Charlottesville, and to back up a little bit and think about um, white supremacist groups in America today. That I think many Americans, um, perhaps until kind of what happened in Charlottesville, wasn't really kind of on their radar um, that that these groups were still kind of operating um, in America today. And I know this is something that that you've worked on extensively, Clive. Do you have uh, thoughts about kind of what what white supremacy and these groups look like in the U.S. today? There's no single white supremacist movement and there's no individual or organization who speaks on behalf of uh, the far right in the United States uh, the history of the far right is certainly one of uh, intense factionalism. Um, it's a very disparate and heterogeneous group uh, of uh, political activists. And you can see that today very much so. It's splintered into all sorts of different groups. I mean, the very fact that the rally in Charlottesville was, you know, in the words of the organizers, an attempt to unite the right um, is indicative of that. So there have been ideological differences, personality clashes in the past that have always undermined the far right's capacity to be a more potent political force. Uh, some of the names of the organizations uh, will be familiar to people. So the Ku Klux Klan is still an active force, the American Nazi Party, and there are many other groups, Posse Comitatus, Aryan Brotherhood, uh, and so forth. In fact, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center tells us that there are over 900 hate groups operating in the United States today, which gives you some indication of uh, of their political uh, uh, power, um, the scale of their membership, um, and their geographical distribution. Uh, they are they are spread. In, across the entire uh, United States. I think the, the thing that's been notable about the American far right in more recent times uh, has been in particular uh, the increased influence that it has uh, through the power of social media in particular, um, but also, you know, through outlets, including uh, most obviously Breitbart News, um, a, 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 a vehicle for the alt-right. Um, and that has, uh, you know, there's not many days that pass without some commentary on how Breitbart News is commenting on the developing political situation in the United States. And that, I think, is in itself significant. Um, while it's far from being part of the mainstream, you know, and it very consciously positions itself in an adversarial relationship with the mainstream media, um, the fact that it's being picked up and quoted by that mainstream media tells us uh, a lot about the, uh, at the very least, the increased influence that the far right has and the way that some of that influence has seeped into uh, the more mainstream political culture of the United States. Is there anything that you want to add? Robert? 
if we're looking for uh, examples of um, um, difference between uh, some of these uh, groups, um, one, 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 one good example, I think, would be the League of the South, um, which um, uh, sent members to participate in the, uh, the rally uh, uh, in Charlottesville. The League of the South is a neo-Confederate um, organization uh, which campaigns openly for a modern-day secession uh, of the southern states from the Union. Uh, that uh, objective um, is not shared by the majority of, uh, or vast majority of uh, right-wing groups. So, if this is a if this is a coalition, um, it is quite a ramshackle um, coalition, and one can one can see all uh, any number of potential. Um, uh, problems and pitfalls for uh, for someone trying to unite these, uh, these 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 groups under the banner of, of white supremacy. So, how then are these monuments that we've been talking about being used by this kind of wide ranging, diverse um, groups of white supremacists? What do they? Why are they kind of thinking um, about the monuments? Why is that kind of what they're um, holding? Um, holding kind of demonstrations over? Well, the monuments themselves are are, are, are perfect rallying points um, in, in many respects for, um, for um, white supremacists uh, of, all, of all types, um, simply because the Confederacy was a white supremacist state or, or an abortive attempt to uh, create a, a white supremacist uh, state, so inevitably its monuments become rallying um, points uh, for these kinds of uh, these kinds of groups. Thank you. Well, well, I'd like to turn now to think a little bit about Trump himself and to Trump's actual response um, to the violence in Charlottesville. Um, so, one person um, was killed and nineteen others were injured um, when a car. Um, rushed into a group of counter-protesters um, in August. And Trump had a statement that um, many people um, found quite shocking. Um, he said in response to this, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. And even after repeated kind of criticism of his assertion that the problem was one on many sides. Um, he again said in a press conference, I think there is blame on both sides. You had a group on one side that was bad. You had a group on the other side that was also very violent. Nobody wants to say that. I'll say it right now. So I wanted to think about what you make of Trump's response um, to to the violence um, that was perpetrated by um, a member of a white supremacist group against um, counter-protesters. Is Trump kind of himself um, supporting kind of the white supremacist movement? Why, why is he saying what he is in response to this violence? Donald Trump um, is a hollow man. He is uh, a cipher. Um, he uh, strikes me uh, as a president um, who has no historical sensibility uh, whatsoever. Um, I don't think he has genuine interest um, in American uh, history. But um, like all politicians, um, he's not averse to seeking a usable past. Um, and this seems to be an instance where he believes uh, history 
uh, can work for him. Um, he uh, he has uh, focused in the past on Andrew Jackson, for example, as a as as, as a president um, to admire, um, um, despite the fact that Andrew Jackson was an oppressor of Native Americans uh, and a supporter of uh, slavery. Um, but I don't think uh, Trump himself um, knows very much uh, about American history. He seemed uh, unsure about when, uh, in one of his statements, he seemed unsure about when Andrew Jackson had uh, had actually died and seemed to think that he could have prevented the American uh, Civil War, uh, despite the fact that he died years before uh, war broke out. Um, Trump, um, however, um, is willing he, to uh, uh, to use history um, if it can um, promote his own uh, objectives. And in this instance, um, he is channeling um, white supremacy uh, and the views uh, and prejudices of white supremacists. So Trump uses uh, America's culture wars um, essentially as as red meat for his uh, for his base. Uh, and so if he can um if he can uh, attack um the anti-fascist uh, demonstrators at uh, Charlottesville um all um well all to the good as far as he is uh, he is concerned you asked Melissa what we make of Trump's statements uh, on a personal level i i'm just still shocked hearing you uh, read um, um those statements of his again uh, and I think, as Robert suggests, um, what's breathtaking in a way uh, about them is the way that the President of the United States is giving at least implicit sanction um, to the conduct of people who should be far beyond the political pale. Um, you know that that uh if one thinks about the anti-semitic and nazi uh uh, uh connections and rhetoric of many of those ac- white activists who were in charlottesville uh it's worth you know robert talked about trump's lack of uh, of 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 an, of an understanding of history america fought a world war uh to liberate the world from the forces of fascism and to preserve democracy, uh, the far right is, you know, is uh, represents those forces uh, that are still not completely in abeyance, um, that are inherently anti-democratic, uh, and for the president to be essentially, well, not just equating um, the the far right with the with the the alt left, as he calls it, whatever that is. Um, is enormously empowering for them, and we we heard David Duke, the former uh, you know leader of the Ku Klux Klan, saying that the reason why he and others had come to the rally in the first place was because they took Trump at his word that he was going to uh, you know take their country back, as they as they put it, um, uh, and you know in effectively at least exonerating, if not endorsing, um, the conduct of the far right in Charlottesville, um, Trump has continued to galvanize them. Um, and it's un- undoubtedly the case that uh, 
that they'll believe uh, with increasing conviction that they can act with impunity. So in The Atlantic, Ta-Nehisi Coates recently wrote an article called The First White President. And in this article, one of the things he says is, it is often said that Trump has no real ideology, which is not true. His ideology is white supremacy. So with your kind of knowledge of white supremacist movements and kind of of how um, how this has been used in the past, would you consider Trump himself and kind of his actions in office as as kind of working towards this larger cause of white supremacy? Yes, it's uh, it's it's depressing to uh, um, to to concede this, but we have a president of the United States today who is um, certainly um, a fellow traveler uh, when it comes to um, uh, white supremacy um, and a a demagogic politician um, who is perfectly willing um, on a daily basis uh, to use uh, racism uh, and racial prejudice um, in order to uh, stir up uh, his base, which of course is made up um, largely uh, of um, whites. Uh, worth bearing in mind perhaps that just under 50% of, of uh, Republicans today um, believe that or say that uh, whiteness is 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 a critical uh, part of their uh, of their makeup, and Trump re- Trump understands this uh, and uh, understands too that uh, this is a section of the population which fears that it is declining uh, demographically, um, and is uh, is willing to use racism in order to in order to stir up this uh, this base. Trump essentially is uh, his his whole political campaign. Uh, really was a response to the uh, election of the uh, the country's first first black uh, president uh, Barack Obama, and and I think must be seen in this uh, in this context. So I just want to think a bit now about Trump's actual response um, to thinking about taking down monuments. So in three successive tweets um, on August seventeenth, he said the following. Sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. You can't change history, but you can learn from it. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, who's next? Washington, Jefferson. So foolish. Also, the beauty that is being taken out of our cities, towns, and parks will be greatly missed and never able to be comparably replaced. So I just want to kind of think based on kind of your your expertise on these topics, what do you make of, of Trump's tweet? What do you think about him kind of bringing up these founders who were indeed slaveholders? Is that is that comparable um, to someone like Robert E. Lee? Um, well, I think this is quite a, a quite a clever move on Trump's uh, part to connect um, uh, Confederate heroes like uh, Lee and Jackson, who rebelled. Uh, against the government uh, of the United States and were regarded um, by the majority of Northerners as traitors uh, to the United States in the late 19th century. Um, It's quite a um, a clever move on on his part to connect these uh, Confederate um, heroes with um, some of the founding fathers because uh, this move um, will um, undoubtedly and has already... um, uh, inc- increased uh, uh, opposition to the um, taking down of, uh, of, of, of of the statues. Personally, I think 
it is a mistake <clears throat> for the um, supporters of <coughs> removing Confederate statues. I think it is a mistake for them to move on to the founding uh, fathers because I think um, the majority of um, ordinary Americans will react very negatively to um, any attempt to um, <clears throat> take down statues um, of Washington um, and Jefferson. So it's quite a quite a clever move on on Trump's part, I think, to to make this connection. So we're almost out of time for today, but I just wanted to finish up by thinking about what the Southern um, Poverty Law Center recently said, which was that white supremacy um, and white nationalism is currently on the rise um, in the United States. Do you do you see this as kind of something that um, is going to continue to be on the rise um, in the future? I think con- controversy over the monuments will uh, will continue, not just uh, Confederate uh, monuments, but uh, um, uh, monuments of founding fathers who were slaveholders, um, Columbus monuments, for example. These are all um, these controversies are, are, are all generated by uh, by modern um, uh, by the modern culture. Uh, wars and they are linked uh, as we have seen t- uh, to efforts on the part of um uh, uh right wingers in the united states to um sustain uh white supremacy it is on the rise um in the united states today um and uh, obviously uh donald trump himself um is um is part of the uh, is is part of the problem um here so it is beholden on um, on all um uh uh, progressives, uh, whatever colour they happen to be, uh, to be vigilant um, uh, and to um, to uh, uh, critically scrutinise um, all attempts by um, demagogic politicians to use history uh, for their own uh, uh, for their own purposes. In the nineteen thirties, the novelist Sinclair Lewis wrote a book titled. It Can't Happen Here, uh, a satirical uh, account of the rise of fascism in the United States that served as a prophetic warning of America's possible future. That, of course, did not come to pass. We are nowhere near a situation uh, like America in the interwar era when the Ku Klux Klan can command millions of supporters, where it can control the governorships of states, um the far right remains a fringe element in american politics but we should make no mistake that they are not an entirely aberrant force um the far right has operated in the united states now for the best part of a century it is currently resurgent with a president who espouses the kind of demagoguery, bile um, that characterizes Donald Trump's rhetoric. It can only serve to energize the far right, um, not necessarily to massively increase its base, but I think to make it more daring in its actions, um, to believe that it is not fighting the government. This isn't like uh, the Oklahoma City bombing in the 1990s, but to believe actually that it has the government on its side and that is uh, an alarming situation in terms of you know, how daring the actions of the far right will become um, in the years immediately ahead. 
Um, we are now looking at a, um, a civil war um, within the Republican Party, a war for the, the soul of the, uh, uh, the Republican uh, Party. Uh, and I think um, in, in, uh, um, in the months to come, um, we will see Trump siding with, um, with uh, the opponents uh, of the Republican uh, mainstream uh, and white supremacist uh, rhetoric will undoubtedly be, play a very, very important role in those, uh, in those efforts on the part of the president. Well, thank you both. That was very interesting and um, very thought-provoking. I appreciate you coming in today. And with that, um, we um, will be back um, in a few weeks with another episode of Trump Walk Sussex. Thank you for tuning in.